Well, historian listeners, it's just Derek this evening. Neil has had to fill in on a work shift, so it'll just be me. I feel a little bit alone, perhaps. I was nearly thinking of getting picture of Neil and sticking it on a cardboard cutout so we could have the two of us here but very excited anyhow to have the company of uh, Christina Hillsberg, an ex-spy no less who has written a book that perhaps a little bit too late for me but could have done with some of what was inside it to help with my kids and raising them but the book is licensed to parent definitely go out and read it if you can so welcome Christina thanks for coming along to the historians hello thanks so much for having me yeah this is great this is great where are you where are you calling from now I'm actually in the Seattle area, which believe it or not, it is like pouring the snow down. Usually it would be rain, but we have early snow this year. It's a little bit of a blizzard happening outside. So, Ah, okay. Okay. And what time is it over there now? It is 10 in the morning. 10 in the morning. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. It's a reasonable hour. Uh, It would be nice (laughs) to get you up in in, in the middle of the night. So, so to get started, you went to school, obviously, you went to college, and you were recruited in college, is that right, to the CIA? That's right. You know, it was never part of my plan to work for the CIA. I studied linguistics and African studies and Swahili and Zulu in college, and my plan was to do some sort of humanitarian work, uh, potentially the Peace Corps, and I actually interviewed for the Peace Corps and the CIA within the same like week or two period, and okay. got both offers, and just had a much better experience with the CIA recruiter. I went to the interview not even knowing what government agency it was. I had just passed along my resume and knew that they wanted to meet with me, so I was kind of winging it a bit, okay. <laughs> and just really hit it off, and when the recruiter said that I would be you know, able to work on my area of expertise, which was Africa, and that I would have an ability to influence U.S. policy and travel to the continent. That sounded really appealing to me and ended up kind of the fork in the road and and went down that way and never went back. Of course, once you do espionage work, you can never go to the Peace Corps and you really can't do humanitarian type work like that after because you want to protect the integrity of those organizations. You know, you don't want people to question whether or not Peace Corps volunteers are actually spies, right? So they're very strict about keeping those organizations separate. So I knew that I was going down a path that I couldn't go back uh, from, but it ended up being a really interesting and, and worthwhile career. Well, there's, well, there's no equivalent over here in Ireland, so nobody coming tapping me on the shoulder and saying, would you like to come work for the Irish version, uh, the, the, the MI7 or whatever it might, it might be called. So it's not necessarily a tap on the shoulder. CIA actively go to colleges recruiting for specialties that they, they need. Is that how it works? They do. And I think if you're particularly if you're someone with foreign language experience and expertise, uh, that's really appealing to them. It was very difficult for them to find people with African languages. And so that made me an attractive candidate. And I went through the process rather quickly. And I think sometimes people are recruited because of the language they speak, but that also tells them that they have an ability to learn a language. So there are sometimes people who will get in and then the CIA will train them in a different language and they'll end up working on a completely different part of the world depending on what national security needs are are at the time. But I was very lucky in that I got to work on Africa for the bulk of my career, which was what I was mostly interested in. I always joke that 
people are motivated to work for the CIA by, you know, a variety of reasons. Some people want to be James Bond. And, you know, that was my husband. He grew up, he wanted okay. to be either Indiana, Indiana Jones or James Bond. And I, I like to think that he's kind of been both at various points. And, you know, there are those people, there are people who are motivated by 9-11, and then there are people like me who are motivated for their love for a foreign land, <laughs> which you do meet a lot of people, particularly on Africa. We are just diehard Africanists who love love the culture, love the language, love the people. And uh, it, it was a great, a great experience. And so that was the first half of my career was I was on the analytics side. And then the latter half, I actually worked on the clandestine side, which is where I met my husband. So actually meeting foreign assets, the tip of the spear is what they call it, and collecting foreign intelligence and that cloak and dagger side, which was fun as well. And, and I enjoyed it, uh, but I, I also just love to write. And there is still writing when you are meeting with assets, right? That's the part that they don't show in, in the movies, right? You go meet with the asset and then you have to go back you know, to your station and your field station and write it all up. You have to write, you know, the, the meeting cable, how you went there, uh, you know, all the stops that you made along the way, and then actually writing up the intelligence you collect, right? That's not shown on screen because that's not like the sexy part, uh, but I've always enjoyed that part just as much. Okay, so you're a well-trained and well-prepared parent to write the book. So in, in Africa, I mean, what actually drew you to learn Swahili? That is well, like, I, as out there as it gets. Yeah, you know, I, I discovered in high school that I had a knack for foreign languages. I, I've just always been interested in language and the way it works, you know, even the English language. And I became interested in, I did a project on Somalia in, you know, growing up and, and developed an interest on that part of the, the world. And so it just seemed like a natural fit. And I had applied to school at Indiana University actually as my safety net school is what we call it here, because it was like an hour away from home. I had no intention of actually going there. And then my senior year, I started thinking more about linguistics and, and studying Africa and it ended up being one of the absolute best places to go. They have an incredible African language program. And then I chose Swahili because I wanted the most widely spoken African language. You know, of course there, you know, there's Fre French is spoken in Africa and that's, you know, arguably very useful in multiple parts of the world, but I wanted a true Bantu language that was different from the Indo-European languages I had studied. I had studied Spanish and Latin in high school, and I wanted something very different and um, just really enjoyed it. And then studied Zulu right before I graduated because, you know, who doesn't want to study a language with clicks in it and just really interesting structure. And, and that's always a crowd pleaser at parties, <laughs> but, but just really fun and, and different and ended up being useful. It's funny because people thought, you know, what kind of job are you going to get? Like, this is the most, like, what are you studying? This is so niche. And then it ended up working out, thankfully. I don't know what else I would have done. So right. <laughs> thankfully they came a knocking. And, and what happens then when you're making the transition then from analyst over to um, like operations, training is obviously comes into it, physical training. You mm -hmm. get, you know, training how to deal with stress differently and things like that. Is, is that yeah. what happens there? That's right. There's a lot of training that's, you know, a lot of it's done down at the CIA's covert operational training facility called the farm. And, you know, you do everything from how to meet with an asset, you know, uh, we do a lot of role playing. So pretend diplomatic functions where you're having to bump someone and you're getting information beforehand and 
you have to find that person and strike up a conversation and, and secure the second meeting. And so lots of role-playing for those types of things, how to debrief an asset to get intelligence from them. But also one of the most, uh, I would say, challenging parts of training for me was the surveillance detection training. That is a really demanding course. And that's when they're putting you through uh, this training so that you can determine if you're being followed by local security services when you're you know, in the field. And as part of that, the idea is that you have to detect that they're following you without them knowing that you detect them, right? So you want to be doing mundane activities so that if they are following you, they'll decide that you're just a normal diplomat or you're just a normal tourist and they'll be on their way and they'll, um, and then freeing you up to do your actual operation. And so as part of that, you have to confirm surveillance over time, distance, and change of direction. So there have to be multiple sightings over those three things, because otherwise it's just a coincidence, right? I mean, that can happen. You're just in town, you know, say maybe you go to the grocery store and you see a guy and then you go over to the post office and you run into the same person, right? That can happen. There are coincidences. So you have to have those elements, multiple sightings over time, distance, and change of direction. And so we pl actually plan, learn to plan cover stops and you map it out on a real, you know, map. We don't use a lot of technology for these types of things. It's very, um, off the grid and you're actually planning all of these places where you're going to stop and they're, you're, they, they're kind of like anchors. And so you have to justify every stop, right? So if you're going all the way out of the way, particularly if you were somewhere that has, you know, a lot of Starbucks is Starbucks, like here, you know, there's like one on every corner. Well, at least there used to be in, in Seattle. Now they're kind of closing some of them, but that's another story. Um, you know, you wouldn't go out of your way for something that, you know, you pass several on the way. So maybe you're going to a really unique comic book, comic book stop, right? So you're kind of picking these unique stops that's taking you so that you're getting enough turns that you'll get natural lookbacks to find out if someone's following you. And so you learn things like identifying the car's headlights in the dark, being able to read license plates backwards in the rear view mirror, because you want to look without looking, so to speak. Interesting, interesting. And it's stuff, demanding. How stressful was it in the field? Well, I can honestly say that in the field, it's not as stressful. And that really speaks to how stressful training is. They really train you for worst case scenario so that you are so prepared and confident in the field. And so anything that I felt in the field felt easy compared to what I went through in training. Because in training, they really try to overload you to see how you respond to stress. And so it's not just the ability to do the surveillance detection runs. It's also the ability to manage just an obscene amount of work thrown at you under these time constraints. And people will break because it is very stressful. And you have to, at the end of the run, make the right call whether or not you were being followed. And, and they actually have hired teams you know, for these exercises that are following you, you know, multiple people and each run. And if you get it wrong, you know, you don't get the certification and, and you fail the class. And so that can be a lot of pressure. But the idea is that when you experience all of that stress and training and you're prepared for the worst case scenario, anything that you encounter in the field is not going to feel as stressful or, or dire. And are you contracted to, or I presume you are contracted to a, a certain a term of service? So how long do you have to typically before you renew your employment or is it in perpetuity if you want? Is, how does it work? 
Yeah. You're not contracted for any amount of time unless, you know, for example, they sometimes have, um, you know, certain bonuses that you could get for foreign language capabilities, or, you know, I know in the past they've done like student loan repayment programs. So if you take extra money for any sort of um, (laughs) thing, then sometimes you have to sign continuing service agreements. I did that once, I think. And, um, and then I just told myself I wouldn't do it again because I think I knew I I wanted to leave at some point and I didn't like the idea of feeling tied there and just not having, I mean, they already control so much of your life, right? Like I couldn't just fly somewhere tomorrow or today if I wanted to, like you have to ask for permission to go anywhere, even if it's personal travel. And the idea behind that is, you know, if you're a CIA officer and you're showing up in Rome and say they have some sort of huge op planned. And then all of a sudden you show up and that could really impact things. And I mean, obviously Rome is a very big city and that would, you know, maybe like a smaller place like Dar es Salaam, Tanzania or something. There are many, as many people there. But um, so the idea being that you're you're getting, um, you have to get approval for virtually so many things in your life. And so I think that was one thing that I felt like I wanted to feel free to go as soon as I was ready to and, you know, and then eventually did. As far as stress in the field and uh, stress having kids, how does how does that compare? As a fellow parent, yep. I guess just I'd imagine it's pretty similar. Yeah, you I mean, people always ask what's harder, being a spy or being a parent. And I always say being a parent because yeah. it's so hard. It is so hard. We have five kids right now and we're in completely different life stages. You know, we've got one in college, two in high school, and then one in kindergarten and one in preschool. And so it's just, you know, totally different things that we're dealing with. And, you know, one of the things when I met my husband, he already had three kids and I noticed that they were just really resilient, self-sufficient, mature kids. And at the time they were six, eight, and nine. And I noticed that he was already applying some of what we had learned at the CIA to his parenting. And it just made sense, right? Because going back to what I was saying about training, um, you know, they prepared us for anything we'd encounter and that, and we want to do the same thing for our kids. And so what we talk about in, in the book, License to Parent, I wrote together with my husband, Ryan, we talk about how we use a lot of these skills that the CIA taught us to help our par- our kids be ready for the world. And it's not about, you know, being overprotective or paranoid. It's really teaching our kids to be well-rounded, right? That's the first thing because to be successful at the CIA and to build rapport and connections with people to the point that they're willing to, you know, spy on your behalf and share intelligence um, and commit treason essentially against their own country, you have to one, be very convincing, (laughs) but you have to be able to build that relationship of trust with them. And if you have a lot of interest yourself, that increases the chances that you're going to be able to build a genuine connection based on shared interests. And so that's a skill that's transferable, not just for kids, but really for anyone in any workplace. The more interesting we are, the more things we've done, we don't have to put on or feign an interest in something to you know, develop rapport with someone. We can honestly say, oh, we also really love, you know, fill in the blank. And so that's, you know, one of the things he was doing with the kids is that they had been exposed to so many different things. You know, they were, you know, shooting bow and arrow, they were riding motorcycles, but they were doing water sports. They were, you know, music, all these art, all these different things. Right. And, and of course I always say it varies for every family and your comfort level in terms of what you're having your kids do. And we live in the Pacific Northwest. And so a lot of what we do kind of lends itself to more of an outdoorsy style. Um, But yeah, that's one of the skills that we took from the agency. But then of course there's things like, 
um, preparing our kids for danger, how to spot and avoid danger, which obviously is something we learned and all of those security awareness skills. And those are things that, you know, there are very scary things in the world and, and that our kids can encounter, but, and we want them to be prepared and, and know how to think critically and respond to those situations. And I think that's the biggest thing that when we give our kids the ability to think critically and, you know, in these situations, they're more likely to respond well. And we talk about this, I think one of the most important concepts we talk about in the book is this idea of getting off the X. And that's something that's drilled into us in CIA training. And the X basically means danger. And the longer you stay on the X, the more likely it is you'll be harmed. And so it's learning to identify the danger and moving away from it as quickly as possible. And sometimes, and we talk about this with our kids, it means potentially ignoring authority figures. It means actually thinking critically in an emergency situation and maybe doing the opposite, getting away from it, right? And you see, like there was an instance um, at a baseball game here in the US about a year ago where there was a, a shooting outside. It was outside the stadium, but it, when it happened, no one knew exactly where it was. Was, right. And it was really interesting because even with adults, you find, you know, you don't necessarily know what to do in an emergency because you had conflicting guidance. There was a voice over the intercom saying, you know, stay put in your seats, the dangers outside. And then on the big screen, it said, please exit through doors A and B. And so then you had people running into the dugout. You had some people under their seats. You had some people leaving the stadium, right? And so there are going to be those situations where you want to stop and be able to think critically, how can I get off the X. Uh, and so we talk about things like that in the book as well. Yeah, because there's something I think in, in South Korea as well, wasn't there a ferry where that's like right. 300 odd kids died out of 400 and something, um, because something similar to what you, you just you described there. So it's really important. And it's funny, it's interesting, like I, I suppose, like I, I started karate, right? So January, last, last January with my two kids. Uh, basically the whole point of it is not to go out kick somebody's ass it's just it's self-confident but we've got it we've got a sick we've got a guy who's 70 he's our sensei he's a six dan it's sure and rue you know the whole thing is know what to do but you don't do it you know what i mean the whole exactly. point is just knowing how and he always he says the same thing if, if you could run run <laughs> it, but yes. if you have to then you exactly. use exactly that's it and real good skills to, to teach kids and it really helps them get a, a sense of self-confidence it's not about it's not about violence it's essentially yeah. about avoiding avoiding violence oh exactly yeah we talk about that as run hide fight in the book and that's yeah. something that's even taught in corporate security as well yeah if you can run get off the x that's number one you know, then hide, like fighting is a last resort. And we'll often like pause movies that when we're watching them with our kids, because that gives our kids just such an unrealistic idea of what the human body is capable of. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's one punch and someone can die, you know, yeah. and we're seeing in movies where people are just punched over and over and over again, and then they get back up and it's like, no, you want to avoid that scenario as much as possible. But like you said, you know, being prepared in the event that it does happen, I mean, that doesn't hurt. I mean, I think that's the best case scenario is preparing for things, knowing that the likelihood of some of them happening, you know, is low. And I think it's really for me, I am an anxious person, always have been. And, and after having babies, it got worse. And so it became really important for me to teach my kids these skills because it allowed me to then give them a little bit more bandwidth to do things because I felt more confident in their ability to take care of themselves and be self-sufficient. And I think a lot of times, I don't know how it is over there, but really the helicopter parenting has really taken over in the U.S. 
over the last several years. And, and with the onset of the technology that can help us, you know, track our kids and do all these things all, that can be fantastic, but it can also make us more anxious. And it can also keep our kids from actually learning how to do things themselves. You know, when I was growing up, I was out on my bike until the streetlights came on and I was, you know, riding all over town across like major highways going out to eat and, you know, all these things that we wouldn't dream of letting our kids do these days. And it's like, has the world really changed that much or is it our parenting or is it our access to information that we think it's scarier than it is? I, I think you're right on that. That is really interesting because it was the same for when I was growing up as well. We just stayed out until it was dark. Parents obviously had an easy life. They didn't have to always entertain. They weren't there to help and, and do all these various different things. But uh, it's not. It's not. It's not healthy for kids. Kids need to be out exploring, uh, falling, cutting themselves. Mm-hmm. When our, our kids sometimes they come in, like they got a bruise. Oh, look at the bruise! You go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no yeah. major accident. You're all right. <laughs> you know, something has changed in society that makes us more fearful as parents, and I, and I wonder what it is. But it's inter- it's interesting, given that you said that you're an anxious person, and given that the job that you chose, and and sometimes now I, I myself would would be anxious, and I have learned to deal with it through the years. I'm a real estate agent. Funny enough, I use role play in training agents the whole yeah, time. Like it's just that's total great. Role, role play. But the reason I did that was to kind of be keep to tell me I'm okay. And you know, that that's why mm-hmm. it's not like money really for me. It's like I people say I did a really good job or that you're you know you're brilliant. It's like oh great. Okay, I'm not that bad. And that is those kind of feelings. And again it comes sometimes from the my my their family of origin <laughs> issues stuff like that oh we've all got them yeah Yeah, we've all all got that kind of stuff but when you when you see when you look back at where people have come from and you find the jobs that they end up doing it's it's really interesting to see what causes people to uh, to do to do various different things and and a bit like yourself i have a a stepson like i don't refer to him as such just for describing he's my son i met him when he was uh, when he was seven um He's 27 now, uh, and then I have two other kids who are uh, 11 and 13. So just they're they're kind of just on the good side now. We're we're, we're getting okay with them. And as I said, I could have, I could have done with the book maybe a little bit sooner. Had you written it a couple <laughs> of years sooner, we, we would have been okay. And who says so? Is it like Ryan? Obviously, was doing all this outdoor stuff with with his his set, and then he does the same then with the the. What can the younger kids do at this stage? What kind of stuff are they getting up to? You know, it's funny because I had... I would like make a mental list when I would see him doing things. We call them the bigs and the littles. But when the bigs were little, when I met him and I remember making a mental list of like, okay, when we have kids together, I'm not going to let them do, you know, X, Y, Z. And of course things have changed because I'm a lot more comfortable with their abilities to do things. And so they're doing things that I never imagined they would. You know, our six-year-old has been riding a motorcycle since he was four and he never had training wheels on it or anything. He shoots a bow and arrow and is incredible. Um, you know, lots of things like that. And, and, and our daughter who's four, she also shoots a bow and arrow. She's not on a motorcycle yet. And that's something that I'm, you know, I I like to say that it's not because spies are riding motorcycles, although you do see James Bond do it in in the most recent movie, which is really, really great scene, (laughs) but it's because it's one of those other skills to be well-rounded. And we also talk about if there's like a natural disaster, how is your family going to get out? Right. There's going to be gridlock. There's going to be traffic. We have 
a couple motorcycles that our family would ride. And we don't have a motorcycle for every single person. You know, people would have to double up and that sort of thing. But I, I say in the book, you know, if you're not comfortable with motorcycles, I'm still not. I don't ever ride with Ryan. He always wants to say, hey, let's take the Harley to dinner tonight. I'm like, hey, let's just take the car. It's not my thing. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever want the littles to ride motorcycles like on the road. But I always say like, find what's comfortable for you. You know, maybe it's bicycles, maybe it's scooters, just the idea is to have a plan to get out of town if for some reason you needed to leave, there was an earthquake, there was a mudslide, whatever there was, and you couldn't take your car. And kind of th the idea is to think through this. Some people kind of res respond with, well, it's not realistic for everybody in the family to have motorcycles or we don't want motorcycles. It's like, well, that's not... You're missing the point. <laughs> You're missing the point. Just have an emergency plan. But yeah, the littles can do all sorts of things. Rock climbing, they've just gotten into with their their older brother. And, you know, a lot of that is just done in this part of the country. But I'd like to think that we would do it wherever we live because it's just so important to expose them to lots of different things so that they're confident. But one of the things that I think helps too is like as parents, when we model that you're never too old to try something new. So I spent a couple summers trying to learn to wake surf behind our boat. And it really did take me a couple summers of, and lots of falling to do. But that really makes an impression on your kids when they see you failing at something over and over again. And it was yeah. over and over again. <laughs> and they see you getting, literally getting back up and trying again. And so they learn a couple different things. You know, they learn that when we fail, we try again. But they also learn that, you know, even our parents, you know, as old as they are, remember how it seemed like your parents were like so old. And then you get to those ages and you're like, this isn't old at all. Or maybe it is, <laughs> you know, but from their optic, they're thinking, gosh, they're so old and they're learning something new. That's going to stick with them because we want them to try new things no matter how old they are. And, and it's also rewarding for us too, to carve out new hobbies and to continuously be growing as people, you know, even yeah. as parents and having our own things. Yeah. And I understand the failure is okay. It's funny. Like it's almost, it's almost rewarded in the U S like failure is absolutely okay. And especially in business, a lot of people say, well, okay, we wouldn't trust you unless you fail once. Mm -hmm. Big different in Ireland. Like it's like the, the idea of somebody going bankrupt would have been like public shaming. So it's, mm. it's starting to change. It's just, it's real one. You don't fell onto this business, you know, through thick and thin. The thought yeah. of having to fail would just be, you know, it, it's anathema to what, what, what I could do. And it's, a, it's a cultural thing, but I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. I think that's it. You got to pick yourself up. We're all human. We're all going to make an awful lot of mistakes and, and you know, mm -hmm. just get on with it and just do and, and yeah. be and, and have fun and things like that. So, so now that right, so when the kids get a little bit older. You've got a bit of a writing bug now, do you think? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Have you, have you yeah. any other plans to do some, uh, some more books? I do. I'm actually just uh, signed with a new literary agency and um, working on a book about women in espionage. Uh, so basically cool. the women at the CIA and kind of the history of the fight for gender equality there and, and women proving their capability to run operations as well. And potentially in many cases, even better <laughs> than yeah, men. Yeah, sure. Basically the stories and, it, and it's the story of women at the CIA over the decades, but against the backdrop of like the larger women's movement and what was going on politically and culturally at the time and pop culturally as well. And, and so I've been working on that. So that's been really fun. Uh, so working on the proposal and, and yeah, interviewing women who've had just incredible careers at the CIA and who've never spoken publicly about their roles. And so it's, you know, narrative nonfiction. And so you'll get to read all about their stories. And, and so that's been right. really fun. 
and uh, also have a TV show that I'm working on that's oh, uh, based on my dating life at the CIA in my 20s. Uh, so that's, <laughs> it's kind of like sex in the city, but at the CIA. So that will be really fun. So yeah, keep being busy. Yeah. Excellent. It's important that you're right about the role of women. I think that that's really huge. We we we, uh, we spoke to Daniela Messinger Young about her experiences, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Amazing, but it's it takes that that strength. And I actually even thought when we were speaking with her, it was myself and Neil, so she'd agreed to come on the show with two men didn't know us you know didn't know how we'd react or what way we'd take things but like it, it's it's it, it really you know you need, you need people personality to go and carry a really strong narrative and we need more of it it's it's simple as that so uh, yeah great delight now to hear you're, you're 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 doing that but um it's been so i suppose to finish up the the cia is it is it growing or shrinking in size do you think at the moment you know i don't i don't know in terms of like official numbers or anything but i will say uh, it's interesting to watch their recruitment efforts because I think with this younger generation, it they're really, if you notice, they're kind of having more of a um, PR campaign than they've ever had. They're like rebranding themselves on Twitter, on Instagram. They had a recruitment um, commercial that was really targeting more millennials and I don't know, Gen Z. I don't even know. Am I a millennial? I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, the younger crowd. And what's interesting to me is that you know, this younger generation, like, you know, my teenagers and and those in their twenties, they're so used to being connected to social media. It's played such a large part in their life. Like they don't remember, we are at the point where there are people who don't remember a time before internet, which is really crazy. Right. (laughs) And so the problem is you go into the CIA and you don't have your cell phone all day. You know, you're at headquarters, you're cut off from the world. You're not checking for likes on Instagram. You're not you know, doing tweets on TikTok, all the things, right? You're cut off. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see what their ability is to tap into the youth right now. And how are they going to convince them to work somewhere where they're basically not going to be a part of, you know, the regular cultural zeitgeist that they're used to, you know, on a daily basis. So I don't know. I don't know if it's gone down. But I feel like it's going to be a challenge. Rattling around, going through withdrawals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think now that I've been on the outside for quite a while, and I have gotten so used to having my cell phone with me and having access to social media, you know, in not a healthy way, I'm sure um, mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, that would be so weird not having it. It's also kind of nice though, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Off. It's nice also because it's a job that if you're not doing, like if you don't have an ops meeting at night, I mean, it can be very demanding in the evenings when you're doing the clandestine work and having the ops meeting. But the nice thing is that you also leave your work at work, right? So when you're right. an analyst and you're writing, you know, whatever for the president or something, once you leave and you're at home, like you're not doing work emails like because it's all in the classified system. So it is kind of nice to have a little bit more of a separate separation of you know work and and yeah no, for sure for sure we could do that but this is this is my bit of separation from work yeah <laughs> do, exactly do, we do all need podcast. it <laughs> that's it that's yeah. it listen thank you so much christina for coming on the show really interested talking to you i will be following your work are you allowed to say what the tv show is going to be called uh, well, it's notionally called Under the Covers, but those kinds of things, uh, right. those, okay. <laughs> those kinds of things right. can always change. But that's that's the the original manuscript is Under the Covers. So um, so a little play on words there, but yeah. should be fun stuff. <laughs>
<laughs> Fair play to you. Thank you so much, Christina. And uh, maybe we'll catch you again some other time when Neil's here with me as well. But thank you. Good. Take care. Bye bye. Well, listeners, that was great. Not quite a historical chat in lots of ways, but what an interesting chat nonetheless from a female CIA officer who, as I just heard, and when we finished up, actually had done some clandestine work in Dublin, no less. So, yeah, really good to talk to her and those skills from working in espionage and what you can actually do uh, in helping your children, giving them confidence and the abilities to negotiate life on life's terms. Certainly very um, helpful indeed. So uh, thank you. I know it's just been myself this evening. And next time we shall surely have Mr. Felderson Hall back in action. I hope I haven't uh, bored anybody and I wish you all a very good evening. Good night. <laughs>